This week's episode is brought to you by Return Home, the new audio drama for me, Jeff. You can find it on iTunes, returnhomepodcast.com, and it's a lot of fun. Check it out. Once again, it's called Return Home. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And I know today we're going to go out of our comfort zone a little bit and talk about something that relates to the sports. Um, what? I know. It's not something we really know a lot about, but... Like bocce ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Winter you bocce mean, ball, to be exact. Checkers? Chess? Stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. Winter Winter chess. Winter chess, okay, that makes that's a lot of the, sense. Then. It's made out of ice, and you need to like complete it before it melts. <laughs> it's it also a summer game, chess, but it's timed. Don't, don't lick the chess pieces. I, well, you get stuck to it then. Yeah, you get stuck to it. I mean, that's a problem. Unless you're thirsty. If you've ever watched the Christmas Story. Yeah, it's a little weird. And we know. Uh, let's let's just talk about it. It's time for Disney history. If we learned nothing else so far in our study of Walt Disney and his work, it was that he was absolutely proud to be an American. You know, from his earliest days in filmmaking to the opening of Disneyland Park, he basically imbued his creative endeavors with the loftiest ideals of the American spirit. And he was even sort of a, a goodwill ambassador to the world, and he, and he was really happy to embrace this role. There was little he would do, he would not do for his country, but his devotion to that was put to the ultimate test when he was asked to chair the Patchery Committee Committee for the 1960 Squaw Valley Olympics. Heading the Patchery Committee for the 1960 Olympics was asking a lot, even for a patriot like Walt. Uh, already consumed with unfinished studio projects and certainly not looking to take on additional work, he could have been forgiven for politely declining the offer. But when Uncle Sam came knocking, Walt could not help but answer the door. The obvious choice to head up Squaw Valley's Olympic festivities, the Disney boss offered that rare combination of sterling governmental support with an unparalleled reputation as an entertainment master. However, while undoubtedly the opportunity of a lifetime, the Squaw Valley uh, possessed some kind of unique problems. Chief among them was that Squaw Valley itself was a little more than a ski lodge when it won, won the rights to the 1960 Olympics. The promise that it could recreate itself into a resort area, able to accommodate 1,000 athletes and countless more spectators, was as yet unfilled. To make matters even dicier, the organizing committee could not offer Walt much in the way of time or money. How could he ever hope to create a spectacle worthy of America and the Disney name under such conditions? It proved fortuitous that the organizing committee approached Walt at a time when his interest in alpine life was at an all-time high. 
So, Walt Disney Productions had just completed filming Third Man on the Mountain in Switzerland, and Walt was basically entranced by the country. And luckily for the Squaw Valley organizers, this was also not the first time that the studio assisted uh, the Olympics. When the Summer Olympics were held in Los Angeles in 1932, Walt provided uh, Mickey Mouse shorts for the nighttime entertainment of the visiting athletes. 1960, though, would be a whole new challenge. So wait a minute, he like gave all the athletes shorts to wear? Yeah, Mickey Mouse shorts, branded. Oh, that's fantastic. Ma nailed it, okay. right? You got it. So Walt would wield a heavy hand in the success or failure of the first Olympics on American soil in nearly 30 years. If his expertise was needed to put his country's best foot forward on the world stage, then Walt could not refuse. And even though less than a year remained before the eighth Winter Olympics were to commence on February 18, 1960, Walt jumped in with both feet. And it didn't take him long to realize just how little money had been earmarked for the pageantry committee. Prentice Hale and some members of the organizing committee talked to me into becoming pageantry chairman. I made the mistake of not even asking if I had a budget, which Walt was quoted as saying. He would eventually get about, you know, $300,000 for his committee, but even that wasn't going to be enough to pull it off. Not until he drafted some of his top studio talent did Walt feel he'd be able to actually pull it off and make something great. Chairing the Olympic pageantry committee was an immense responsibility for anyone, let alone, let alone a man as busy as Walt Disney. And although the opening ceremonies garnered the lion's share of the attention, that was just the tip of the iceberg. The daily medal ceremonies, off-hours entertainment at Olympic Village, the closing ceremonies, theming and decor, and much more all fell under Walt's purview. But in his mind, the pageantry committee had one responsibility above all others. Quote, Nothing is more important than creating lasting goodwill among our visitors, and we shall do everything we can to make their stay a happy one. End quote. He said. So creating lasting international goodwill was really easier said than done, and that's where the Disney talent came in. From the, the Walt Disney Studios came such visionaries as Tommy Walker, the unseen hand from behind Disneyland's many parades and firework displays, um, art director and imagineering legend Don, John, excuse me, John Hench, and future president of Walt Disney Productions, Card Walker. And he even managed to recruit Art Linkletter to head up the committee's entertainment planning. Yeah, I bet when they were asked about snow, John Hench said he's got 37 different colors of snow. Probably. More than likely. Use. More than likely. So Linkletter had teamed up with Walt on the live broadcast of Disneyland's opening day in 1955, and both men were hoping for a more successful partnership on this occasion. With such a strong Disney influence on the pageantry committee, it should come as no surprise that Walt took one very large cue from his Anaheim jewel. Much as Sleeping Beauty Castle rises at the center of Disneyland, so too must Squaw Valley have a centerpiece. It was decided that the Tower of Nations would fill this role, proudly standing guard at the center of all Olympic activity. So surrounding the tower would be 30 flagpoles, with each flying a flag from one of the 30 participating nations. And as a side note, actually one of these majestic flagpoles now stands in front of the Walt Disney Elementary School in Marceline, Missouri. Um, so smaller decorative flags would adorn the tower's uh, 80-foot tall frame. And the Tower of Nations would, was to be Walt's larger-than-life symbol of the worldwide fellowship that the Olympics stood for. But the tower would not be the only thing to see in Squaw Valley. Walt planned 32 large statues made of snow and ice to represent Olympic athletes competing in various events. 30 of the snow figures were to line the avenue of the athletes, while two larger icy sentinels would flank the Tower of Nations. 
The concept of creating such beautiful snow sculptures had been basically bouncing around in Walt's imagination from the moment he was recruited for this task. And one of his first moves as pageantry chairman was to dispatch John Hench to the Dartmouth Winter Carnival to research these uh, wintry statues there. And proving that just one winter carnival is never enough, Hench also swung by a similar event in Quebec before returning to California. Walt envisioned these sculptures to be more than just eye-catching theming. They would serve as subtle tributes to the ancient Greek tradition of constructing statuary uh, of its most honored Olympians. The committee would be tipping its cap to the Olympic homeland while still retaining a clever Squaw Valley twist. Paying for these snow statues, however, remained no small obstacle. With the very meager pageantry budget already strained to its limit, Walt had to get creative if the Snowfingers were to become a reality. And in a desperate effort for subsidization, Disney's Edsel Curry pitched a unique idea. Select California cities could each donate one statue as a gift to show their solidarity and support for the Squaw Valley Olympics. Agreement was slow and grudging, but all 32 statues were eventually built, thankfully. I love that grudging. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so next week, we'll take a look at the creation of the opening ceremonies and some of the other issues that the planning committee had to face in order to pull it off. But, you know, we'd love to know your thoughts. Did you have any experiences with the Squaw Valley, the 1960 Olympics, or any uh, cool stories from that event at all? Did you give participate? Oh, yeah, that'd be even better. Ooh, did they give out, like, ice medals? Ooh. And do you still have them? Probably not. Uh, probably not. So give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd. He's a geek. Because we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. So for this week's book, I'm going to look at seven different titles. This is sort of like a part one of my essential Walt Disney World guidebooks. Cliffhanger. So, yeah, cliffhanger. Ooh, seven more books? You're kidding me. Um, <laughs> so if you're doing any type of research about Walt Disney World, or if you think you're the biggest Walt Disney World fan out there, then I've got, as I mentioned, 14 books that I think you need to own. You know, I've been collecting Disney-related books for over 20 years, and I've got over a 1,000 at this point in time. And I want to give a shorter list that people could get into and start collecting. And so, more affordable. Yeah, some of them. Yeah, not all of them, but some. Not all of them. Okay, so the first one we're going to talk about is Since the World Began, Walt Disney World, The First 25 Years by Jeff Curdy. And this might be the 23rd time I've mentioned this book on the show. Um, I love this book. I try to mention every opportunity because it's the only official history of Walt Disney World, even though it just covers the first 25 years. And it represents the one book that all Walt Disney World enthusiasts, researchers, and fans should own. Jeff Curdy, uh, his book takes us on a fantastic overview of the Florida property, and he's able to s dispense such a large history into a single volume. So I love Since the World Began. Next up is Disney A to Z, the official encyclopedia by Dave Smith. Now, I've only got the first three volumes. There's a fourth one apparently on for sale at Sam's Club, but I don't have a membership to Sam's Club, so I haven't been able to get it yet. But anyways, so the third one, the 2006, is the preferred title just because it's the newest besides that one. And Dave's Encyclopedia offers short entries that deal, uh, detail the opening, closing, and general history of the parks, the resorts, the restaurants, and the attractions. Um, overall, it is the go-to resource for quick information and for finding out those small details. And of course, most of it is available at the D23 site as well, but it's awfully cool to have the book, especially during a zombie apocalypse yeah, when there won't be any internet. Yeah, you never know when that's going to happen. 
Exactly. So next up is probably most people's favorite books if they're a Walt Disney World fan, and it's Walt Disney's Epcot Center, Creating the New World of Tomorrow by Richard Beard from 1982. And this book really is hard to describe. If you love Epcot Center, then you need this book. It's 240 pages dedicated solely to Epcot. There is amazing concept artwork, and the narrative behind each pavilion is quite eye-opening. Uh, Disney at the time had a hard time explaining the concept of Epcot Center to the world, so this book was sort of like a PR campaign. It's one-of-a-kind resource, and Disney hasn't published anything like it before and probably never will again. And there are at least four different versions of the book. Um, two of them are small and two of them are large, so make sure you get one of the bigger ones that's about 240 pages. It's well worth it. So next up is The Art of Walt Disney World by Bruce Gordon and Jeff Curdy, released in 2009. This one's pretty darn expensive now in the aftermarket. Uh, when it was released, not a lot of people bought the copy because it was theme park only. So if you got one, hold on to it. Basically, um, Jeff Curdy and Bruce Gordon pulled a lot of artwork from the Walt Disney Imagineering archives and showcased the entire resort from pre-opening up into the early 2000s. It's got some beautiful artwork. Some of you have seen online now, but at the time it was quite stunning. So next up is Walt Disney World Then, Now, and Forever by Bruce Gordon and Jeff Curdy. Again, um, it's almost a follow-up to Since the World Began, but not quite. It's a general look at what makes Walt Disney World such a special place. So Curdy and Gordon, well-known to Disney book fans, offer a look at Walt Disney World through the years, including sections on long-gone attractions and what replaced them. It really is a good addition to the collection, and it's geared more towards the casual fan, but it's still a great book. Next up is one of my favorite books that doesn't have a lot of pictures in it. That's all we'll say. It's Vinyl Leaves, Walt Disney World in America by Stephen Fellman from 1992. And basically, Fellman is a sociologist and wrote a treatise on Walt Disney World. He spent a lot of time doing in-park research, which means we call going to the park, and he offers insight into how Disney looks at Americana and how American society reacts to Disney in a theme park setting. The book can be fairly dense, but what's really shining and what's the jewel of the title simply are the attraction walkthroughs from the author. He goes through almost everything at the Magic Kingdom and at Epcot, tells you about the queue, what to expect on the ride. It's pretty spectacular. Uh, it's also got a really great index and bibliography, but that's just for me. So the last book for this week is The Gardens of Walt Disney World Resort, a photographic tour of the theme gardens of the Magic Kingdom, Epcot Center, and other resort areas by D. Hannaford from 1988. This book is probably one of my favorites. It's at least in the top five of all of my books. Before the days of digital film and the interweb, there wasn't a place that you could, you know, you know, spend months on end just looking at photographs of Disney parks. And this book offers stunning images of Walt Disney World pre-1988. Full page and larger images showcase the resort and what a vacation was like before the expansion of the Disney decade. Not a lot of historical information, but the photographs are amazing and show a lot of areas of the parks that are gone or have changed. I love this book. So there you have it. You've got seven titles, which you'll be able to find again on Communicore Weekly if you want the full titles. And next week, we'll look at seven more. What we liked, what we didn't like, yays in the booze, 60-second review. 
So do we really need to review The Force Awakens on Blu-ray? I mean, come on. Best-selling film of all time. Best-selling? Best-selling? Is that a book? Most tickets ever sold? There we go. That's better. Yeah. Something like that. You know, the... the uh, okay. So the film, The Force Awakens, looks super gorgeous, sounds super spectacular. I guess I should have said Forcey gorgeous. Sure. Nah, never mind. So buy the Blu-ray. You're going to love it. You're going to watch it all the time. So let's talk about the other reasons. To you mean aside from the film? I mean, yes, the course. extras. Yeah. The extras. Yeah. Um, they were all spectacular. I mean, yeah. let's let's start re- immediately with the feature-length documentary on the disc that covers the making of the film. And it is incredibly in-depth. And did I say amazing already? I'm going to say amazing again. Yeah, please do. It's amazing. It's called The Secrets of the Force Awakens, A Cinematic Journey. And, you know, I've got all, you know, the giant blu-ray release they did a few years ago and there's nothing like this on any of those um it's a documentary as jeff mentioned and it's wonderful on so many levels there were interviews with the cast and the filmmakers special effects they even go into some of the story work that they did which is usually pretty unheard of and it's it's one of the most satisfying documentaries i've ever seen included with a film and i don't mean satisfying in any way i mean it it was great I mean, it's probably one of the most satisfying documentaries ever, in my opinion. Um, I mean, on several level of it, it's kind of like the standard fluff piece, but it really does show the fantastic, like, behind-the-scenes process of making the film and how they pulled it off. And it's basically stuff that I, you know, I love. I devour this stuff. Mm -hmm. I'd watch it over and over again. And, you know, throughout that entire documentary, there's some cool little tidbits here and there. What I really liked was, like, Daisy Ridley's original Mm -hmm. audition and how, like, intense it was. Yeah, and John Boyega's eight auditions that they made him go through before they cast him. So it was cool little tidbits that were yeah. thrown in there. And he's got a funny accent. He does. <laughs> he ain't American at all. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's it's well known that uh, Mr. J.J. Abrams really prefers shooting on actual sets, and the documentary showcases how well that works. Um, there were parts where you know you you've got a physical set, then it goes up into a green screen. I couldn't tell. You know, in this film, magic. it looked that good. It was magic. So um, I, I did kind of chuckle that there were, seemed to be a few subtle jabs at the all-digital productions, like maybe episodes one through three. I don't know. Mm. Maybe, maybe not. But, you know, it, it, the documentary was long. That's not bad at all. It's, it's what you wanted. You could sink your teeth into it. You could enjoy it. Um, you know, and fans are really going to enjoy this in-depth look at the film. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, so next along was the long-awaited deleting scenes, um, and they were they were pretty cool to see, even though they were kind of short. And I would have liked a little bit more of the director commentary about why they were cut or what overall purpose they served, but I get it why it wasn't there. Um, but it was still cool to see some of them, like the the Snowspeeder chase or mm-hmm. you know Kylo Ren on, on the Falcon. I mean that was pretty awesome. We've all saw that in the trailer, and it wasn't in the film, but everyone lost their collective minds. So exactly, it was cool hey. to see it here. You know, a buddy of mine saw Kylo Ren take his shirt off in the shower, and he said that Kylo Ren has an eight-pack, and that Kylo Ren was shredded. Yeah, but that guy, Matt, straight up sucks. Yeah, but, you know, this, this, yeah, I guess I can see where that could go. Yeah, So yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry he killed your son. Um, yeah. <laughs> so another one of the really cool things I had was the table read, the first table read of oh, the yeah. film with the entire cast. Yeah. And it wasn't the entire table read. It was just bits and pieces of it and, like, the, the cast and crew talking about it. But it was cool to see them reading the script together for the first time and to see Mark Hamill actually reading the stage direction, which oh. is more lines than he had in the actual film itself. <laughs> yes, it was. And it was 
<laughs> he was like, well, I was invited there and I couldn't figure out why. <laughs> but they wanted me to read it. I'm just going to hang around and look. Oh, how good that was to see him, to hear Mark Hamill read it. But, you know, you got a feeling that from the documentary itself that these people weren't here to make a dollar. No, they were you there to love really, for it. Yeah, they loved it. The 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 older Star Wars actors with the new generation. You've got all the people that helped make the film. Um, Lawrence Kasdan, who uh, penned Empire, had a large part in it as well. You got a lot of behind us. They kept calling him Larry, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I thought was kind of funny. So, yeah, the the special effects were special effects. <laughs> the Wait, documentaries, the, what, the bonuses, bonus the features. bonus features. Thank you, were spectacular. And you know, I pretty much would have bought them alone. I would have also, especially the one about um, the crafting of the creatures, where all the practical oh. creatures that they made for that yes. quote-unquote cantina scene, it blew yeah. me away, the detail and like the story that they had for each creature that was in there. Yeah, so that way Wikipedia doesn't have to create the story yeah. lines. Yeah, Wikipedia has them already for yeah. you to read. Now, I do admit the thing on making BB-8 kind of, uh, that was almost a spoiler. A kind little bit. of. I would have it liked to have kept cute. that magic going. Yeah, the magic that was going, but that's okay. So, but overall, the film looks gorgeous. It sounds gorgeous. I it is gorgeous. Already see how this is going to have just as big of an effect as A New Hope. I agree. It I really agree. It's, it's taken a couple of showings for it to sink in, but it's just got everything that you want in a Star Wars film. So, a thousand thumbs up? At least a thousand. Okay, let's go buy it, guys and gals. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. Jock Lindsay's Hangar Bar is a treasure trove of five-legged goats, mostly dealing with Indiana Jones. Um, But this week's goat looks at something from Raiders of the Lost Ark. So in the film, uh, Indy goes to The Raven, which is a bar that is owned by uh, Abner Ravenwood and run by his daughter, uh, Marion. So Indy is looking for the headpiece to the Staff of Ra, which is now a medallion that uh, Marion wears around her neck. So of course, after they use it to find the Ark, it kind of just sort of disappears from the narrative, and no one knows where it goes to. But you can actually find it here in the Lost and Found in in, in the hangar bar, but it's by the bathrooms. So, uh, I don't know, maybe grab it. Find yeah. the Ark. Who knows? Places to imagine, but it might be kind of hot. Yeah, that's right. Don't burn it onto your hand like a certain uh, Nazi did. That's all we'll say. But yeah. hey, if you'd like a prize, you can actually put your hands on. Oh my gosh. Oh, oh, oh. I don't even know how I feel about that one. <laughs> Let me tell you about our year of a million or so limited time cadets weekly prize giveaway. <laughs> oh my gosh. So as we've been doing for over a year now, we've been giving a prize every week at the end of the show. Some are sponsored by the wonderful Teresa Cory at Fairy, Fairy, Teresa Corey at Fairy Godmother Travel. Mm-hmm. And this one is sponsored by Communicore Weekly. So hey, this will be a Communicore Weekly prize pack. And Jeff, take it away. So this week's winner is Martha J from Huntersville, North Carolina. Ooh. Hooray, Martha. Hey, nice. And if you're wondering, in case you've never heard how you can enter this weekly prize drawing giveaway that we're giving, we're not giving away a drawing. We, I mean, we, we could, could give away a drawing. We could give away a drawing. Um, just have to email communicorweekly at gmail.com with your name, address, and birthday so we can add you to the ever-growing list. Mm-hmm. we still got a few more months we're giving away prizes. Yay. 39? Okay. 38. Yeah, 38. Something like that. We're not so good at the maths. I think it's 38. Yeah, I got you. So we're at the exact opposite end now of the 38 week anniversary. Yes, we are. Wow. Oh, wow. That's weird. That is weird. That's that it just weird. came up like that. Okay, well, on that weird note, 
a weird bookended note. Yeah, but anyway. So thank you guys so much for watching and listening or listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. However you get the show, whether you're watching it on YouTube or you're you're getting it from iTunes, leave us a comment, leave us a rating. We'd love to know what you think about the show. And we need some more nine-star ratings. Email us at communicoreweekly at gmail.com to enter the prize or just say, sup, Kylo? Yeah, sup, Kylo. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicoreweekly. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope because occasionally... You can watch Jeff Heimbuck play Dungeons and Dragons. Pretty much, yes. Occasionally. Uh, I am at Imagineerding on all those platforms, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And, of course, you can always give us a call on the Communicorely Goat line at 424-785-4628. And go to our website, CommunicorWeekly.com, and click on the Communa Store. We can find awesome things like T-shirts and Communicore Weekly, the musical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you want your official cadet membership card or Communicore Weekly stickers, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And if you'd like to find out how you can help support the greatest online show, visit patreon.com slash Weekly. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show.